electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Tyler Matheson. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, you'll hear from Daniel Iveson, the chief investment officer at PIMCO, on his outlook for the economy, inflation, and the cryptocurrency market. Iveson joined my colleague Leslie Picker for CNBC's Delivering Alpha live stream on October 20th, 2021, to talk about turning crisis into opportunity, building hedge fund portfolios from a relative value perspective, and trend-following strategies. Here's their in-depth conversation. Let's just get right to it. The main reason why we're sitting down today is because PIMCO is celebrating its 50th anniversary. You recently published a secular outlook, something that you call the age of transformation. I just want to kind of quote from it to help our viewers understand exactly what you're getting at. You believe that it will be, quote, radically different macro environment as the post-financial crisis, pre-pandemic new normal decade of subpar but stable growth below target inflation, subdued volatility and juicy asset returns rapidly fading in the rearview mirror. All that sounds great. So what are we in for in the future then? Sure. Well, it's great from a past tense perspective. But unfortunately for investors, we think the next five to 10 years is going to be a lot more difficult. We've seen a tremendous rally in nearly all financial assets. And when we look forward in time, we think it's going to be much harder to replicate those returns. Fixed income yields are low. Equity valuations, credit valuations are stretched. Particularly compared to the last financial crisis, 12 years ago, where you had a lot more return cushion coming out of that period of uncertainty. So I think as a starting point, investors have to be comfortable with lower returns going forward and unfortunately higher volatility or more uncertainty. And that's exactly the combination of of outcomes you don't want as an investor. And therefore, we think it's going to be a much more challenging environment going forward with a lot of uncertainty, a lot of potential volatility, uh, but with relatively low return prospects and the need to be very, very careful in committing capital over this period. Careful how? Is there alpha to be had in this kind of environment, or should everybody just kind of set their expectations lower and see this as more of a reversion to the mean? Yeah, so, so you know, our concern more is on the beta side. Uh, there's been a tremendous uh, compression in compensation for taking various forms of beta. And looking forward, you know, we're about to embark on a considerable uh, transition in many areas of the economy. We're coming out of this COVID situation with a lot more debt, debt on government balance sheets, debt on corporate balance sheets, debt on consumer balance sheets. Uh, yet we live in a world of quite radical uncertainty uh, on climate. Uh, we're about to embark on a massive transition from brown to green. Uh, it's not going to go smooth. We even see over the course of the last few weeks the tremendous volatility in energy markets. Technology um, is creating tremendous disruption. Uh, the COVID period was the ultimate case study in trying to do more with less. Uh, there's been a lot of innovation, and that's quite positive. It may even lead to a more sustained period of productivity growth. But it's also going to accelerate disruption. And from a fixed income investor's perspective, most of the brown-oriented companies, the traditional companies, are carrying all the debt. The disruptors have very little debt. So from the perspective of our opportunity set, you have to be very, very careful on a go-forward basis. So I think you have to think more broadly in terms of opportunity set. 
You have to respect the fact that beta returns will be likely lower. But in a world of volatility, increased regulation, increased political uncertainty, uh, alpha prospects can be fairly strong because there will be a lot of friction. There will be a lot of volatility. There'll be more winners than losers. So uh, from the perspective of alpha generation, uh, we're pretty optimistic. But beta returns, base case returns for fixed income and equities are likely to come down. I think we've simply pulled forward too many returns over this period where you know, policy has been so supportive and in, in the process elevating uh, financial assets, you know, literally across the globe. So given all of this, where are you putting capital to work? Where do you actually see opportunity uh, in light of this very dire macro backdrop? Sure. Well, you know, we have been, you know, continuing to expand our opportunity set and in, encouraging investors where they can to expand the opportunity set on a global basis. I take a look at more opportunities, I diversify, uh, increase the overall opportunity set. Uh, and if you can give up liquidity, take on more complexity, there's room to generate additional return. All of this massive policy that we've seen in place the last two years or so has been very, very targeted on the most generic forms of financial assets. They've led the rally higher, um, and there are still opportunities in related sectors, sectors that haven't been the beneficiaries of direct stimulus. Uh, and again, that's what we're encouraging investors to do uh, over a multi-year period, expand that opportunity set on a global basis, be willing to be a bit more flexible, get away from more traditional benchmarks where possible, and then expand into private markets as well, where you, of course, are giving up liquidity exchange for either higher returns or a lot more resiliency through better protection, more control. And I think that's going to be an ongoing theme uh, for the next next several years. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I want to get your viewpoint on inflation because I know that's front and center for a lot of managers these days. In, in your report, you talk about there being periods of higher highs uh, and lower lows for inflation. What about more in the near term? Sure. How are you viewing what we're seeing right now with regard to prices? Sure. So um, no, no discussion would be complete without a comment around transitory. And I think uh, it's probably an overused word, but it's also a word that's rarely defined. So you know, we do think in the base case, inflation will remain elevated. There's considerable near-term risks to the upside in terms of inflation. Uh, but we generally believe that inflation will prove to be relatively temporary. And by that, I mean that inflation will tail off over the course of the next 12 months or so uh, to a point where it doesn't get embedded into longer-term expectations. That's the definition or the thought process we like because the Fed and other central banks have told us that if inflation expectations become embedded uh, in the marketplace, 
they will act and they'll move sooner than they would like to move. So our base case view is that inflation will remain relatively contained, but uh, our bias is towards significantly more inflation risk over the near term. There's tremendous uncertainty around this reopening process on both the demand and the supply side. Uh, even over the course of the last few weeks, it feels like as COVID caseloads are dropping and dropping dramatically, that we're seeing a significant acceleration and likely more pressure in terms of the demand for services in particular. So the bottom line is uh, a constructive base case view, but a pretty negative left tail, at least for the time being. And then when we look at the markets, uh, the markets aren't pricing in a lot of inflation still. So it's not the type of market environment, particularly on the fixed income side, where we want to make a strong bet against inflation at this point. So Mm -hmm. we remain quite defensive regarding interest rate risk more broadly. And we remain a little bit concerned that higher inflation over the course of the next few months could seep into confidence more broadly and potentially begin to impact credit spreads and equity valuations as well. You believe those will come down as a result of that? Well, we do. We think that's a risk. I, I think a lot of the talk around transitory or not transitory tends to focus on interest rates, where the real concern is if inflation becomes more um, unsettling uh, for policymakers and begins to bleed into people's assumptions around credit and equity markets. Uh, it's talked about less, but I think that's really the more significant concern. So not only have we been defensive on the interest rate side, we've been looking to upgrade our credit portfolio, become a bit more liquid, which will give us flexibility to respond to any overshooting over the course of the next few quarters. Uh, And again, um, remain constructive in the base case, but cautious given the uncertainty and the fact that you're not pricing in a lot of inflation risk at the moment. So we don't want to be out there too boldly betting against um, that type of scenario. Do you trust that the Fed has everything under control at this point in time? We had um, Paul Tudor Jones on CNBC this morning. He was on Squawk Box where he basically was saying, I wouldn't invest in fixed income at all as an asset class because I don't know what is going on with regard to the central bank right now. Um, Do you feel differently? Well, I think there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And I don't think that the Fed, you know, behind closed doors will think that they have everything under control. Uh, Central banks tend to project optimism. Uh, They don't like to unsettle markets. Uh, But it's a Fed that's dealing with a very, very challenging situation. Um, This is an incredible uh, economic environment. Uh, A sudden stop of a global economy, massive health-related frictions, potential changes in preferences, and we're seeing that with labor supply more broadly. So the Fed is a tough job. I think it's it's pretty easy to criticize the Fed. I think it's very, very tough to be in that seat making those decisions. But with that said, um, you know, the Fed is betting on inflation remaining under control. Uh, and there are some risks that if it isn't under control, they'll need to move more abruptly. And again, that can have spillover effects into financial market uh, volatility more broadly. So I think they're trying real hard. I think they're doing the best they can do under highly uncertain situation or circumstances. But sure, you know, there's a risk that, um, that they won't get things perfectly right. And we will have a much more volatile 2022 if inflation remains elevated. What do you think the outlook is for rates given all of that? Over the near term, uh, we're cautious. Um, we think that there's a good chance that rates can go higher over the near term. Uh, and in fact, across our portfolios, including some of the income strategies I work on day to day, we're about as defensive as we've ever been regarding interest rate risk. But again, you know, looking over the long term, looking at the powerful disinflationary forces that were in place pre-COVID and likely will continue to be in place, probably the best example of that would be automation and its impact on uh, global labor markets. Uh, we think that the risks over a three to five year period are much more balanced. So we see rates going higher potentially near term, but we think they're going to remain relatively contained. And by that, I would mean 
you know, a 10-year Treasury rate, you know, up in the 2% zone, perhaps a little bit higher than that. What we don't see is a, a breakout-type scenario into much higher rates or a much higher rate regime, at least at the moment. Interesting. Um, you mentioned record debt and leverage levels stemming from some of the fiscal policies that we saw coming out of the pandemic. Um, what does that mean for the prospect of a rate shock? Well, I, I, I think in general, um, this makes um, the overall financial markets much more sensitive to interest rates. Really, since the global financial crisis, we've had stronger and stronger linkages between the financial and the real economy. Uh, and that was exacerbated by the policy response this time. Uh, debt levels are very elevated, so you have far less margin for error. Uh, that's true of the emerging markets, particularly some of the frontier markets uh, that are carrying alarming levels of debt coming out of this crisis period. And it's true of the corporate sector as well. So you know, we do think that this is an environment where financial asset returns are quite dependent on this low rate regime holding. And if we were to break out into a much higher yield uh, environment, it could have significantly negative effects for equities, uh, credit-sensitive uh, investments as well. So it's another reason why we're a bit more cautious. Um, we've obviously booked a lot of gains across portfolios, whether we're talking about fixed-income portfolios or multi-asset portfolios. We do think um, investors should become a bit more cautious here, particularly in the more generic forms of, of credit risk or equity risk, you know, given elevated valuations, a lot of debt, less flexibility, and the potential for a lot greater volatility. And you mentioned that you know, you're as defensive as you've ever been moving up the capital structure, I would presume, in, you know, in light of all of this. Do you think that there is a moral hazard that's been created here? Uh, and what does that mean for monetary policy, this idea that you've got leverage and debt levels across the country and across the world, really, that have never been seen before? Does that put the central bank in a more difficult position when it comes to raising rates? Absolutely. And, and this started, you know, back, well, started many, many years ago, but uh, it was a byproduct of the policy response to the global financial crisis. And then we saw with this COVID situation, uh, many central banks crossed another line with direct support of credit markets uh, here in, in the United States in particular. So we do think that one of the negative byproducts of this policy is moral hazard. Uh, the fact that a lot of companies that probably should have failed this cycle didn't fail. Uh, and central banks have attempted to avoid what used to be a pretty traditional a cyclical process where um, when you have a negative growth shock, there's a cleansing mechanism there um, that doesn't exist at the moment. So you know, this is an issue that may not rear its ugly head for many, many years, but it's something that we do think about. When you look at the entire um, corporate opportunity set, when you look at the broad equity market, you know, there are likely a lot of companies that um, are valued at levels they wouldn't be valued at if there wasn't the central bank put or the concept of the central bank put in, in investors' minds. So, you know, definitely an issue that we think about and a reason to be you know, very, very careful and very selective in uh, the coming years, given the fact that there's an inherent fragility in the system, uh, and that's gotten um, to be a bigger issue over the course of the last several months. Um, while we're on the topic of macro, what are your thoughts on what we're seeing right now with regard to supply chain challenges, with labor shortages? Are all of those kind of factored into your base case that this is to use that word again, transitory. Um, do you see these things kind of working, working themselves out over time, or is this something that we should, really should be paying attention to, regardless of what it's what it's meant for inflation? Yeah, that's a very important question. And, and I mentioned earlier, you know, our base case is that inflation will be mostly transitory. One of the big, big risks uh, to our base case forecast, and why we are still very, very cautious about betting against in, 
inflation here is that we and in, 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 in economists more broadly don't understand what's going on on the labor supply side. Uh, there's clearly been a shift in preferences uh, coming out of this COVID period. Um, work from home, flex work, less work. Uh, people aren't returning to the labor force as quickly as we would have anticipated. And uh, again, this was a very, very unique shock that none of us as investors have gone through um, in our lifetimes. So I think a healthy degree of humility is very, very important. We're very, very focused on the, the, the micro areas of the labor market to attempt to understand this dynamic. But it's a significant risk, and it's a significant risk to a more benign inflation forecast if we don't see uh, at least a gradual return of people to the labor force, because that's going to mean even greater supply constraints, more inflationary pressure, and that could end up being of more of a permanent nature. Yeah, it's pretty rare that you hear economists say they don't know why something is happening. Right. So when I hear that, it's, it's a cue to kind of sit up and listen, um, because this means that there is additional uncertainty out there that's, that's really meaningful for for the economy here, given all of that, what, what do you think are the best hedges in light of this uncertainty? How should investors be positioning uh, in a way that protects their downside? Sure. Well, you know, again, I, th- I think we very well could be in a period where, where at least locally, bonds provide less uh, protection than they would have in the past because inflation will, for the coming few quarters, be the primary risk that investors are concerned with. Uh, also, when you look at um, various direct forms of inflation protection, like the tips market, we've seen a rise in break-even rates, um, but not um, a breakout from you know more normal patterns that we've seen over the course of the last couple of decades. So even there, although uh, at break-even rates today, you may lose a little bit of money in the base case with a big allocation to tips, you, you will benefit from that type of allocation in a more negative scenario or a scenario of higher and more sustained inflation. Uh, commodity markets, although they've rallied considerably in certain areas from a longer term perspective, uh, look reasonable as an inflation hedge. Uh, real estate, to some degree, will provide uh, some reflationary hedges in certain sectors and subsectors of that overall marketplace. Then things like gold uh, and other stores of value also uh, potentially could protect against that scenario. Gold's been quite out of favor on a relative basis. Uh, but again, has some room to perform if we get into a much more negative environment than we're in uh, today. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Proponents of Bitcoin would say that's a, an inflation hedge of sorts. A unique, more uh, untested uh, inflation hedge because it's uncorrelated to the broader broader economy. Do you have any views on that front, especially as we're seeing more momentum with regard to ETFs for Bitcoin and, um, you know, greater institutional acceptance of crypto just as a whole? 
So it absolutely can be that type of hedge from a theoretical perspective. But there's obviously a tremendous amount of volatility and, and you're taking on a, a, a lot of additional risk with crypto and Bitcoin in particular. These are rapidly growing and changing markets. Uh, Bitcoin has some leadership in terms of broad institutional following, uh, but there's rapid and in, insignificant in change. So our perspective on cryptos is it is potentially a store of value that can be an inflation hedge. This is an area of the market that's growing and changing rapidly. It's here to stay to some degree, but you have to be very, very careful of regulatory responses. Uh, we've seen it in China more recently. Uh, we've heard uh, concerns expressed uh, by the SEC. Um, so you'd have to be careful in the, in, 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 in the crypto universe. But, you know, we're of the mindset that there's plenty of uh, investments out there in the world that don't have fundamental value in a more traditional sense, but that investors have a high demand for. So I think crypto uh, is a newer generation example of that. Uh, we respect that demand. And as a firm, uh, we're spending a lot of time uh, analyzing crypto, thinking about decentralized finance, how it may disrupt our business, how we can offer solutions for end investors, realizing that a lot of our backgrounds, you know, at least on the leadership side at PIMCO, are in areas very, very different than crypto. So it's critically important that from an institutional quality perspective, you know, we're doing a lot of work. We're being very, very careful, um, but still staying on top of what's going to be a very, very important market. What have you learned so far, and have you made any strategic changes as a firm uh, based on that research? Are you considering putting capital to work in crypto? Well, we are. So, so uh, currently, um, at the moment, in some of our hedge fund portfolios, we're trading from a relative value perspective. So we're not taking directional mm -hmm. exposure, but we're looking to take advantage of mispricings between the cash product, uh, a, you know, a popular trust that trades on the exchange, and then the future. So that was a starting point for us in a very narrow segment of our business. Now we're looking at potentially uh, trading uh, certain cryptocurrencies as part of our trend-following strategies or more quant-oriented strategies, and then doing more work on the fundamental side. So this will be a gradual process where we spend a lot of time on the internal diligence side, speaking to investors, and we'll take baby steps in an area that's rapidly growing. Uh, and then secondly, and you know, probably a good conversation for our CEO, Manny Roman, uh, you have to understand this technology. You have to understand decentralized finance because it will be disruptive and it very well may disrupt our industry and our business in particular. So you know, we're spending a lot of time you know, researching uh, these trends, these themes, looking at ways we can use this technology internally, of course, for the benefit of our existing and our future client base, but also really thinking about scenarios, longer term scenarios where this could take us to ensure that we are um, competitively prepared to deal with what's a rapidly changing environment that offers a pretty significant value proposition, particularly for uh, younger generations of, or the new generation of uh, the investment community. So are you speaking kind of about things like blockchain, that type of technology where you have ledgers that are over, uh, you know, that are digital as opposed to, you know, a much more uh, supply chain oriented system within the financial services industry? Absolutely. And, that, and that's where we're doing our research. Um, we will be making some additional hires uh, uh, at, at a more senior level uh, to, to help us move forward a lot of the strategic resource. And then, of course, we learn a lot from our well-informed, more junior employees uh, on this particular subject. Uh, and I know it's real. It's, it's, it's in front of us. Um, there are, you know, banks considering uh, issuing debt 
using this technology. Um, and it's going to be, again, um, in some sense, a competitor of, of ours. So uh, area of considerable focus. Don't have all the answers yet, but we're going to be spending a lot of time uh, in these areas over the next uh, next several months. Fascinating. Um, you, you, of course, mentioned China in that, that current conversation about cryptocurrency. I'm curious your thoughts on what's going on there right now. I know at, at Milken earlier this week, there was some investor debate about whether China is still investable at this point in time. PIMCO made some headlines for being out front on the whole Evergrande situation by paring back its exposure ahead of some of the, the issues that we've seen recently. But given just the broader re, uh, regulatory environment over there, is it investable in terms of you know, debt at this point in time? Yeah. So, so we believe it's investable, but you have to be very, very careful. And, and maybe to step back for a moment, uh, China is going to continue to grow at a very high rate relative to much of the rest of the world. Uh, and this is going to continue. You're going to see further development of capital markets. They're still going through a growth transition, you know, from an export-oriented economy to an economy, you know, focused more on uh, in- internal demand. Uh, and, um, you know, this is a relatively, you know, young capital market, uh, an untested area um, of the marketplace. So there's going to be a lot of volatility. Uh, China, you know, views capitalism very differently than we do in the West. Um, and they will have priorities that seem foreign to us or, or, or different, um, and that's going to lead to volatility or unpredictability in the way that certain sensitive situations like the challenges you know, within the property sector uh, are resolved. So uh, we are very involved strategically on the ground in China. Uh, we intend to be there long term, but we're also very, very careful. And when we looked at um, that particular sector and segment of the market, uh, it was very hard to understand how problems would be resolved. And that's been one of the reasons why we have been so cautious thus far. And even when we look at some of the uh, more volatile, um, weaker names um, at these very low dollar prices. We've yet to gain considerable, you know, confidence to come in and 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 put our clients' capital to work in some of those situations. Uh, but there are a lot of high quality companies in China. They've widened in sympathy. There's more uncertainty in that market than other um, segments of uh, the corporate universe. And in some of those higher quality names, we have begun to. Um, purchase certain high, higher quality names that have widened in sympathy and where we see a much stronger fundamental credit profile. Mm. So I wouldn't say un, uninvestable. You just have to respect the uncertainty there, the untested nature of those markets, and be very, very careful. If you had a clearer regulatory roadmap, would you feel more comfortable? Is it, is it about regulation or is it just about the amount of debt that these companies tend to be sitting on? Well, there's a lot of debt. Um, there's a lot of complexity around onshore and offshore priority. Um, for cash flows, um, recoveries. Um, so it would help to have clarity there. Uh, and also there's, of course, tremendous tension, uh, global tension between the U.S. and China, China and the rest of the world. And that's another key secular theme. This, this type of friction uh, between the U.S. and China uh, is going to continue to exist, probably accelerate over the last few years. So there's a political dynamic as well. Um, so again, any clarity um, around these sources of uncertainty would give us a bit more confidence to put money to work there. Um, we may get a little bit of that. We don't expect to get a lot. So therefore, we'll continue to be careful and probably more defensive uh, than many others in deploying client capital in, 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 in that region in particular. PIMCO as a whole has been getting more and more exposure to private assets in recent years. I think the AUM figure for that is now over $100 billion at this point in time. Um, 
I want to get your thoughts on real estate specifically. I know you've been a big fan of housing for some time now. Um, commercial real estate was mentioned in your report as, of course, an area in transition coming out of the COVID pandemic. How do you view this world, especially given some of the the inflection points that we seem to be experiencing coming out of the pandemic with regard to housing, commercial real estate, a bunch of areas that have really been upended in recent years? Sure. And, and we actually, during the last uh, global financial crisis, we used that as a catalyst to put together teams to take advantage of what turned out to be one of the best opportunities of the decade uh, following that period. And we have these teams in place. Uh, we've recently rolled the Alliance real estate team uh, into our team here at PIMCO and working very closely with them. And when you look at what's occurred over the course of the last couple of years, uh, as we talked about earlier, uh, all of this direct stimulus has found its way into the easiest to own segments of the corporate credit or equity opportunity set. And within certain areas of the private opportunity set, um, you haven't seen as direct a benefit from all of this fiscal stimulus, all of this monetary stimulus, including balance sheet expansion. So when we look at the opportunity set uh, within real estate more broadly, we see a lot of attractive opportunities, especially from a relative perspective. Uh, within commercial real estate, for example, the lodging sector, um, under great stress um, given the COVID shock, but a tremendous uh, recovery potential and very, very attractive valuations when you look at opportunities within the private real estate markets versus what you're seeing on the public side. Within residential real estate, this is an area where you can acquire season assets that have been direct beneficiaries, beneficiaries of the rapid increase in home prices we've seen over the last uh, few years. Uh, and then we're in a world where there are too few homes versus the number of households that, that have been formed uh, over the last several years as well. And we see a tremendous opportunity to be part of the rebuilding process, uh, multifamily, um, apartments, uh, new single family units uh, across our platform as well. So we think this is one of the best relative opportunities for investors. Of course, you have to give up a little bit of liquidity. Sometimes you take on a little bit more complexity, but I think you get not only resiliency, you get more attractive nominal returns on a go forward basis as well. So again, one of our highest uh, conviction themes you know, coming out of this COVID period. Fascinating. And last question, because I know we're almost out of time, but I have to ask you about ESG, sustainability, social bonds. I saw a recent statistic that they totaled $778 billion in the first nine months of the year, an increase of 57% compared to last year. That's according to Refinitiv. Is this activity healthy? I know you have an ESG fund here that you manage, but there has been so much capital put to work in this space that was really not that large before. Are you seeing evidence of a bubble here? Well, I'm not sure if I'd categorize it as a bubble. Uh, ESG is critically important because it's on the minds of nearly every one of our investors here at PIMCO. And what's very important to note is that it means different things uh, to different clients. Um, so from the standpoint of, of us as a firm, we want to be able to provide good service to clients as they continue to focus more and more on ESG themes, climate themes. So we want to be able to engage on their behalf. We want to provide them with good uh, information, um, ratings, um, realizing that there's many different ways to look at ESG and to rate these companies, and of course, engagement on their behalf. So uh, this is a very, very important area of the market. It's going to grow more important, not less important over the next several years. It's on the minds of regulators, politicians, investors, uh, and it's going to impact um, ultimate investment outcomes. So even outside the dedicated ESG funds, it's critically important that you take these issues into account because it is impacting pricing. 
you're going to have transition periods. You're going to find um, segments of the marketplace where um, this demand for ESG-type risk could, could potentially take valuations uh, to fairly extreme levels. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why when people ask, uh, you get better returns at ESG versus a traditional-type mandate, we're so cautious in, 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 in just focusing on doing our best to generate the maximum returns we can given a particular mandate, but not making promises or not suggesting that any one style is going to outperform another. Um, it's really you know, providing good client service um, in an area that um, we absolutely are sure, are sure it's, is going to become more and more important for them. That was Daniel Iveson, Chief Investment Officer at PIMCO. He joined us on CNBC's Delivering Alpha live stream on October 20th, 2021. The keynote is produced by the CNBC events team. Don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit CNBCEvents.com to learn more about upcoming events and how you can join us. We'd love to have you there. I'm Tyler Matheson. Thanks for listening. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.